the excitement and the blessing of this day continues to be great indeed as we have opportunity to again assemble and to gather as we are for the express purpose of offering our worship unto the great God of heaven. As Roger mentioned already this evening, just before the services began, we are thankful for the privilege it's ours to assemble and to gather in this way. And as you already see on the wall behind me, we continue a series of lessons having to do with the minor prophets of the Old Testament. It has been our goal now for four previous lessons to reflect upon these minor prophets and the order in which they appear in the Bible. It would be fair to say that that's not always their chronological order, however. And so tonight, as we come to the fifth of them in terms of their presentation, we come to Jonah, the minor prophet Jonah. You may notice on this next slide, as we simply give a quick reflection to the introduction, it's been our goal to highlight some of the messages and the lessons of the minor prophets, realizing that they too are inspired and that the matters contained in them were preserved by the nature of the Word of God. It was His will. Although many of them are shorter than the major prophets, to be sure, we understand they nonetheless were inspired and their messages are intended to be beneficial for us indeed. And so our first lesson was Hosea, and then Joel, and then Amos, and then Obadiah. And tonight we come to Jonah. You'll notice about the middle of that slide. The book of Jonah, again, is relatively brief. A total of 48 verses scattered in four chapters. But in the midst of making that statement, we might also recognize it's likely the case Jonah is the best known of all the minor prophets due to the record that's revealed in that book and the interesting characteristics connected to it, at least in terms of later recognition in the Bible. One of the last things, though, on that slide would be this. If you do much consideration in terms of research or look at some of the writings of the so-called scholars, it will not be at all surprising that many of them will call into a rather strong consideration doubtfulness with regard to the actual historical character of the book of Jonah. In other words, they'll say no man could have lived three days in the belly of a fish the way that this book supports that this man did. And that furthermore, no one would have been found in a position to survive such an ordeal as that. Now, the first thing you and I will say to that is the Bible records that such an event did occur. Why should it be thought that this would be any more far-fetched than the other miracles of which we read in the Word of God? The parting of the Red Sea. Those that were dead brought back to life. Other matters connected to events such as the healing of various elements of sickness and illness. And yet, the Bible presents Jonah as a historical event. And even Jesus referred to it that way. And that ought to be enough for you and me. In Matthew 12, verses 38 to 41, Jesus referred to Jonah and said, He was three days and three nights in the heart of the fish, in the belly of the fish. And in the same way, He said, The Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, referring to Himself, referring to the length of time in which He, in fact, would have had His body buried, if you please. We know relatively little on the whole about Jonah. He is mentioned in one other place in the Bible as far as his historical Old Testament presentation. And that's in 2 Kings chapter 14. It is to that point we do learn this much. He was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. 
And we also learn he actually gave some powerful, truthful advice on that occasion to one of the kings of the ancient era. But when we come to the book of Jonah, we tonight will have a very different impression in some ways about him. It is having said all of that. You notice that in chapter 1, verse number 1, we do learn somewhat about his hometown. The text says, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the son of Amittai, saying... We learn that Amittai was his father. And again, in that Second Kings passage, we learn that he was from the place of Gath-hefer, which was in the tribe of Zebulun. It is with that said, we're prepared to turn our attention to chapter number 1. As we reflect upon the book, may I ask that we do so, reminding ourselves that that record we learned perhaps as a child in Sunday school class in which we gave interest in the book of Jonah. You and I might note that tonight some of those same truths and matters that we learned so long ago will take an hour of renewal and an hour of power as we think about applying its messages to ourselves. Tonight, as I chose to divide the the presentation of of, of the book, I chose to do it like this. We're going to look at it under the banner of running. And as we do that, we're going to start with chapter number one. Jonah ran from God in this chapter. And it's a scene, again, somewhat familiar to us, but as the stage is set, it proceeds in a way like this. The Almighty God of heaven gave a rather direct commission to Jonah. You'll notice it in verses 2 and 3. Arise, go to Nineveh, God said, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. And almost instantly, we notice that here God was mindful of and quite apparently very knowledgeable of the state of affairs connected to the city of Nineveh. Now, isn't it true that Nineveh was the capital of that nation you and I call Assyria? The ancient Assyrian Empire had as its capital the city of Nineveh. Therefore, Nineveh was very well known. It was a populous city. In chapter 4, verse 11 of this book, we learn Nineveh had a population in excess of 120,000 people. Sizable, to be sure. To be in a position to add to that, we also observe this. Assyria was a powerful nation. In fact, at that time, she was arguably the most powerful nation on earth. Egypt had somewhat slid, at least slightly, And so she was no longer the great powerful force that she once had been. And Babylon was shortly to arise, but at this point, it was Assyria. You may notice then on that slide that she, this Assyrian nation, was a powerful enemy to the Israel. In fact, Israel was going to have to face her, and it was not going to be pretty. It was going to go very poorly, in fact, for Israel. But at least for now, could we not note this? God's commission to Jonah was very straightforward. Go to Nineveh and cry against it. Did you notice one of the statements that God affirmed was, Their wickedness has come up before me. And isn't that a powerful reminder? Here was a pagan nation. They didn't have the Word of God in terms of the law of Moses. That had never been given to them. They were Gentiles, you see. And yet God said they were guilty of wickedness. People who you see were not of the children of Israel, they too were susceptible to God. And they too had a law to which they were amenable. 
and the city of Nineveh had failed. They were wicked by way of the decree of heaven. And now what did Jonah do with this information he had been given? You and I know well, verse number 3 reads like this. But Jonah rose up to flee into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. This next map that I've invited you to consider will highlight somewhat of where Jonah then was and where he sought to go. I believe it paints a rather dramatic picture. You'll notice that again, the big yellow dot over here is the place wherein we notice that Jonah actually boarded a ship. Now you'll notice that this arrow points out to us somewhat of the direction that would ultimately lead one to Nineveh. Nineveh was that way. Isn't it amazing? Jonah basically went as far opposite as he could possibly go. It was his wish to go to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, the seaport town, not too far, you see, from Israelite territory. He paid the fare, apparently, boarded this ship, and you'll notice that twice in that verse a statement is made. A phrase is presented. May I invite your attention to it? It says, from the presence of the Lord. That phrase occurs twice in that one verse. It was his desire to actually flee from God's presence, to go where he thought God would not be, to go where he thought God would not be aware of his presence, and to go where he thought he would be thus not subject to the command God had given. He boarded a ship at Joppa, and sought to go to Tarshish. Now, would you take note? To go to Tarshish would require, in essence, to travel the full distance across the Mediterranean Sea. Now, you and I know that was a rather lengthy trip. In that day and time, that would not be made quickly, nor would it be made in any short amount of time. And yet, that was his plan. And he sought out to pursue it and made some distance along it. Let's go back to the previous slide and finish it by making these observations. Though he attempted to run from God, you and I remember, and may I invite you to note verse 4, and the wording that therein is found, But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Isn't it amazing how often you and I have seen throughout the biblical record that storms can easily arise on the, on the Mediterranean Sea just like they could on, say, the Sea of Galilee. One of those storms here arose, but did you know where it came from? There are several things God sent in this book. You and I know about the great fish, but notice here God sent the wind as well. That storm didn't just arise accidentally. It didn't just arise as a natural weather pattern, if you please. This storm had as its, as its origination the very intent and pursuit of the God of heaven. God sent that wind, the desire of which was to bring this reluctant prophet to his senses so that the glory might be directed to God and the Ninevite people could be blessed. But first, there was a bit of challenge to come before us. What would happen as a consequence of the storm? Verse number 5, Then the mariners were afraid, and cried every man unto his God, 
and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. So those expert sailors were so fearful that they began to throw overboard the contents of the ship. Now you and I know the ship would thus rise higher in the water, that being said, and the waves would be less likely to come over the actual side of the, of the ship and cause great damage or possibly even causing it to sink. As they did all of this, however, notice that Jonah was asleep. It's entirely possible for an individual, you see, to be in a completely bad circumstance in life and yet to live in such a way that they might even have some restful nights. It's entirely possible your conscience could be so seared, your understanding so weak, that you could live completely aloof of the things of God, and yet it might not bother you. You and I might be impressed at a prophet of God living this way. If Jonah was the kind of prophet he ought to have been, his conscience should have been bothering him to know he was running from God, or trying to at least, and yet you and I notice God knew exactly where he was. Notice in the very next verse, don't you find it amazing to appreciate this next conversation that, that took place? So the shipmaster came to him, the him is Jonah, and said unto him, What meanest thou, sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be, that God will think upon us that we perish not. And they said every one to his fellow, Come and let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. I wonder how Jonah was feeling about the time they were casting the lots. Do you were thinking internally he was hoping, Please don't let the lot fall on me. I don't want to have to address these men and try to explain to them why, as a prophet of God, I have dutifully chosen not to do what he told me to do. And yet it gets even worse. Verse number 8 goes on to say, Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us? What is thine occupation? Whence comest thou? What is thy country? And of what people art thou? Would you like to have been in Jonah's shoes trying to answer those questions? To explain to them, I'm a prophet of the Lord, and I'm here trying to run from Him. I'm here choosing not to do what He told me to do. Now later on you may notice, well, maybe you suppose that Jonah didn't actually tell them all of that. However, notice verse 10, he did tell them. Then were the men exceedingly afraid and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Jonah was honest enough to share with them the particulars of his foolish choice, why he was where he was, and that he was the cause of the storm. Now at this point, to the credit of the mariners, in verse number 11, they ask him, What might we do in light of this God you serve that this storm might be calm? And Jonah said this, Take me up, verse number 12, and cast me forth into the sea, so shall the sea be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. When they asked him what needed to be done in order to bring calmness and safety to them, he said, throw me overboard, cast me into the sea. 
You and I notice in verses 13 and 14, after a bit more effort to try and bring that ship to safety on their own, they did cast him overboard. As you and I close that slide, it brings us to the one following the map. And it challenges us in this way. Jonah now finds himself in the sea, having been cast overboard. And now in verse number 15, as we read that to the end of the chapter, it says, So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. It's time for another reflection. Can you imagine the mindset of those mariners who, when Jonah was thrown overboard, that sea became calm? Do you suppose they had an element of appreciation about the nature of the God whom Jonah was supposed to be faithfully serving? Do you suppose that they pondered about the character of the fact of what Jonah had told them to do and what would result? Surely in that light, we now look at verse 16 that answers our question. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. As you and I close that slide, we're prepared then to note this. Jonah had made effort and attempt to run from God, but he had failed miserably. And so too will everyone who makes an effort toward that end. You and I cannot run from God. It is not a possibility because the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good, Proverbs 15.3. Do we not read in Hebrews 4.13, We have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. And neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened in the eyes of him with whom we have to do. A more extensive passage that at least describes that aspect of God is the 139th Psalm, where so much is said about no matter where you and I may go and what you and I may do, God is aware of it. Jonah learned that lesson valiantly. The children of Israel were so short-sighted as to think in Ezekiel 8.12, they could hide from God. And Ezekiel had to challenge them, no, you can't. You shall never succeed at that. You and I would do well today to simply understand how foolish it is to even try to think that we can hide from God. Chapter 1 has then been about Jonah attempting to run from God. What about chapter number 2? This time, he runs to God. Chapter number 2 has but 10 verses. And as you and I notice some of the matters described, it begins like this. Then, verse number 1, Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. What an interesting place for prayer. And yet, as here he was, let's listen to some of the things he prayed. Verse 2, And said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. May you and I understand well the promise of God to those that are His children. 1 Peter 3.12 God has promised. His eyes are over the righteous and His ears are opened unto their prayers. David affirmed that, didn't he, in Psalm 66. Again, Peter has stated it. Did Jesus more than once say things like this? Ask and it shall be given you. 
Seek and ye shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened unto you. Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8. With those words from the Lord, aren't you and I reminded and encouraged that we too can turn to the Lord and lay upon Him the concerns and petitions and the matters that cloud our way? Let's notice what else is said by Jonah. For thou hast cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about, all thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. The waters compassed me. Even to the soul, the depth closed me round about, the weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice unto thee with a voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Don't you find a prayer like that intriguing, interesting, not only from the place where it was prayed, but the sentiments expressed in it. The fact that Jonah affirmed, I'm going to be thankful, even in that state, in the belly of fish with weeds wrapped around his head, he was thankful. How thankful are you and I? Living in a nice warm place, a nice house, lots of food to partake of, may you and I never cease to be thankful. There are those like Jonah in a lot more challenging circumstances than we. And yet he affirmed in verse number 9 that salvation is of the Lord. As we close the chapter, might we ask, did God hear that prayer? Did the God of heaven have a mindset to not only be mindful of it, but to react and respond? Verse number 10 of that closing verse of the chapter says, And the Lord spake unto the fish. Here's an instance where God spoke to fish, by the way. The Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. How exciting is it then to ponder that inasmuch as God had more work for Jonah to do, there was more things for him to accomplish. He had tried to run to Tarshish, but God knew that there were more things on His plate for accomplishment. As you and I close that slide, can't you and I think today about how excited the God of heaven is when someone who is a wayward child of God returns faithfully to the fold? How beautifully is that presented in Luke chapter 15. In the context of a lost son, in the context of a lost coin, in the context of a lost sheep, there was great rejoicing in every instance when that which was lost was found. Might you and I remember today when we find ourselves apart from God due to our failure and our sinfulness and our own foolish choices, nothing better could we do than run at once back to the loving arms of our Heavenly Father who is so anxious for our return. Jonah here had prayed and now we come to chapter number 3. Having looked at Jonah's attempt to run from God, and furthermore, his running to God, how about chapter 3? Jonah runs with God. Let's see how that develops. And we do so as follows. It begins with great strength, with the opening two verses in Jonah chapter 3. 
And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. Aren't you and I thankful that our God is a God of second chances? When you and I do make our mistakes, we can come back to the Lord and there's still a place for us in faithfulness at His right hand and a place for our service in His kingdom. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Verse 3, or rather verse 2 says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach into, unto it the preaching that I bid thee. The message that now came to Jonah was this, Jonah, do you remember what I said the first time? I haven't changed my mind. Go to Nineveh and preach the preaching I bid thee to preach. It could be argued, I suppose, that's the single greatest verse on preaching in the entire Old Testament. It would rank right up there with 2 Timothy 4.2 in the New Testament. Preach the Word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. But Jonah, I haven't changed my mind. I still care about those Ninevite people. And you're the vessel I've chosen to go preach to them. And so you go preach to the Ninevites. I would say to you and me too, there's other lessons in that for us. Sometimes there are things about the Word of God that don't always appeal to mankind. They don't like it. Because it doesn't allow them to do what they want to do. It steps on their toes and demands they change their attention and that they change their way of doing things. And mankind just often doesn't like that. Regardless whether Jonah liked it or not, the message was still the same. Go to Nineveh and preach. The best thing you and I can do is to learn to love the Word of God as it is. Don't wish it were different. Don't wish you could change it. Don't wish that somehow you could modify it or alter it because we can't. Nobody can. No one has ever been able to. When Jehoiakim tried that in Jeremiah 36, it didn't work. When some in the New Testament thought that they might have a desire to, again, it did not work. The first thing you and I could do is learn to love the Word of God as it is and to appreciate that it is that perfect, authoritative, and right way of God as He has presented it to us. The Word of God has now come to Jonah the second time. How did he react this time? Did he try to go to Tarshish again? Let's read the next few verses. Verse number 3. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. And he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown." What directness! What a message. For a moment, just ponder the place that Jonah was. Here you have walked right into an enemy nation. And you have the nerve to say, repent or perish. That's in essence what he said. You've got 40 days to repent to change, to turn, and to in fact thereby acquire the faithful patience of God. And if you don't, destruction awaits. Can't you and I be mindful of the directness of our God? Repent or perish. There is no third option. <laughs> but someone says, but that's much too rigid. Isn't there another way? 
can I compromise somehow and I'll take a little bit of what God has said because I'll be okay with that. But all of that's just too much. There was no compromise for the Ninevites. It's not as if God allowed Jonah to say, okay, you preach hard, but then if they in fact beg for compromise, you compromise with them. There was no option. Verse number 5 now has these things to say. I hope we're impressed. When the text reads, So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed." And published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? What an amazing text. You'll notice that here we have a far better impression of some Ninevites than we often had of God's people Israel. Quite often through the prophets, God's prophets brought to the people of Israel the Word of God, but they had no interest in it. Did Jeremiah 5.31 say, in such interesting fashion, My people love to have it so. Have what so? They love to have their ears tickled. They love to not do what I've said, and yet they're supposed to be my people. Here, these pagan people, the heathens, the people of Nineveh, the text says in verse 5, they believed God. Here's an enemy nation that believed God. Not only did they just have a kind of assent that way, it went so far as the king laid off his robe and put on sackcloth and sat in ashes. And not only that, the people in general, they proclaimed a fast so extensive that the people and the animals were not even to eat or drink. That's interesting. They withheld food from their animals and even put sackcloth, according to verse number 8, upon them. One has to be impressed with these Assyrians. Although in general they were known for cruelty, although in general they were known for violence, although in general they were known as the enemy of God's people, they here were more righteous than many of the Israelites we had seen in days gone by. That should be a reminder to us. God looks with such favor upon those who genuinely turn to Him and have an interest in receiving His Word with fullness. Now that we see the people repenting, I wonder how God reacted. Closing verse, chapter number 3. And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that He had said that He would do unto them, and He did it not. When Jonah had said forty days, and men would be overthrown, God relented of that sentence in light of the people's reaction. But one chapter remains. Isn't it true that we have seen something so different? When Jonah ran from God in chapter 1, it was a disaster. 
When he ran to God in chapter 2, things got far better. When he ran with God in chapter 3, here he has impacted in a great way so many people. Remember, a hundred thousand, over 100,000 people lived in Nineveh. The king and the people at large have reacted with godliness. But one chapter's left. Chapter number 4. As we close the book with that particular chapter, we now come and appreciate this one. I'll have to ask Cale to help me turn this one. But in chapter number 4, we notice this time Jonah also runs, but it's not a pleasant picture. He actually runs ahead of God, or he runs before God. How does that happen? At this point, we learn a valiant truth about the person known as Jonah, and it begins with the opening statements of chapter number 4. Perhaps we can summarize like this. Throughout the book of Jonah, we knew that Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord in chapter 1. He sought to go to Tarshish as opposed to Nineveh. But at that time, we never learned why. Why did Jonah feel this way? Why did he choose that path? Chapter number 4 finally tells us. Allow me to read the first couple of verses of that chapter. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah said, this is exactly what I knew was going to happen. If I preached to them, I knew that they might in fact, respond. And I knew that their heart would be such that that's why I fled to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious God. I knew that you were a merciful God. I knew that you had a heart desirous of this people being right and that you would not punish them if they repented. Can you believe a prophet would act like this? Hoping that they would be destroyed? hoping that they would remain distant from God, hoping that God would pour upon them His wrath for their disobedience. And yet, that's what Jonah said, I knew that this would be the case. It would seem fair to say that without a doubt of the twelve minor prophets, Jonah was the only reluctant one. When we read about Hosea and Joel and Amos and Obadiah and the ones that are going to come further in our study... We find courageous and bold servants of God who in the face of affliction and adversity would proclaim God's truth. Those people hoped that they would repent. Jonah didn't want them to repent. Today, might you and I never have a heart like that. A heart in which we hope people will remain calloused from God, distant from Him. They'll be lost and suffer eternal doom. You and I have to look rather harshly upon Jonah for that kind of mindset. Let's look even further in the chapter, though, beginning in verse 4. Then said the Lord, Doest thou well to be angry? God entered into conversation with Jonah, I suppose hopeful that he might come to recognize what a terrible way of thinking. 
God asked, do you think you're right to be angry like this? Now look what happens next. So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. If you and I might describe, Jonah went out on the east side of Nineveh, and it says he made him a tent. He prepared a place to dwell, and on that high place he could watch the city to see what would happen to it. Now the next verse reads like this, And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. Here's something else God prepared in this book. He had prepared a wind in chapter 1, a great fish in chapter 1, and now we notice He prepared a gourd. God's able to prepare a lot of things for the express benefit of bringing His will about. Jonah was very happy for the gourd. It provided him some shade, some protection from the scorching heat of the eastern part of the world. You and I might remember the placement of Nineveh. It was a city located in that place often called the cradle of civilization. Today, you and I would recognize it as the place of modern-day Iraq. You remember people in that part of the world, Saddam Hussein and otherwise, how dry and dusty and barren it can be. Jonah was thankful for this gourd tree that brought him some shade. Now look at what happened to the gourd tree. Verse 7, But God prepared a worm when the morning arose the next day, and it smote the gourd that it withered. Something else God prepared. A fish, a wind, a gourd, and now a worm. As God prepared the worm, the worm apparently sufficiently impacted the gourd tree, perhaps cutting off the character of its nutrients, and so the gourd tree died. Verse 8, it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east wind. God prepared something else, another wind. And the sun beat upon the head of Jonah and that he fainted and wished himself to die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for the which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night, and perished in a night. God challenged Jonah rather notably, didn't He? You had more concern, more care for a gourd tree than you had for those souls of the Ninevite people. You were more agitated, more bothered about the gourd tree losing it than you were over the souls of those people. That's a tragedy, isn't it? When you and I remember the words of the Lord in Mark 8, verses 36 and 37, you and I well recall that Jesus Himself said, What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You and I know how precious the soul is, and yet here's a prophet who thought more of a gourd tree, and his protection from the hot east sun and wind than he did of those people. And the book closes in verse number 11. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? 
God, I hope, taught a great lesson to Jonah, don't you? We don't have any more record of Jonah in terms of his, his historical work. But we can hope he became a faithful prophet of the Lord and one that God could use on many additional occasions to share forth his great message in as much success as it was at Nineveh. But as you and I close that slide and we close our study tonight, oh, what a record has been the book of Jonah. The developments of Jonah and his running. He ran away from God or tried to in chapter 1. He ran to God in the middle of a fish's belly in chapter 2. He ran with God in chapter 3 while he preached the truth. And he ran ahead of God in chapter 4 thinking what God never thought. And you and I remember how God challenged him in way of that line of thinking. Have you had occasions when upon reading the Word of God, you read something and think, that's hitting me right in the forehead. I haven't been thinking like that. I haven't been appreciating God's Word like that. And sometimes you and I are brought as strongly to appreciate some things as we hope Jonah did. As we conclude this lesson this evening, we'll do so with one final slide. In brevity, it's this one. The book of Jonah, as wonderful as a record as it is, reminding us of that amazing time he spent in the belly of a great fish. Again, Jesus referenced it as a real event. And we do learn something also in Matthew chapter 12 about the statement the Lord made. The people of Nineveh repented when Jonah went to them the second time. And Jesus said, greater than Jonah is here. Jesus Christ is greater than Jonah. If the people of Nineveh were blessed by turning to the preaching of Jonah in that day, how much better off will you and I be? How much better off would the world be if we would all bow in humble submission to the greatest preacher the world has ever known? Jesus the Christ and His truth, because salvation is of the Lord. Tonight, as you and I ponder ourselves and think about our consideration in life, if there's anyone in this assembly that's distant from the Lord, maybe you'll not need to be one to spend some time in the belly of a great fish to recognize that God is calling you. He's wishing for you to be faithful. He's wishing for you to be with Him in every way. If tonight we could assist in that way, maybe as a wayward child of God, you would have an earnest heart to come back to your first love, Revelation 2.5. We would love to assist and to help, making acknowledgement of your confession and repentance. We would pray to God. You'll notice that God does hear the prayers of His faithful children. If you have never become a Christian, tonight, this night, the 23rd day of October, the year 2022, your spiritual birthday it could be, a day you could put on the Lord in baptism, a day that you make the greatest confession that could fall from the lips of anybody. I believe with all my heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. If we could be of assistance in that way, what a day of rejoicing, a day of celebration, a day that all eternity for you has been turned to the way that's right. If we could help in any way tonight, we invite and encourage you to come while together we stand and while we sing.